All right, good morning, everyone. Genesis chapter 42. Nine more chapters. And we finish the book of Genesis. Some of you are saying, oh, thank God. I hope it's been a good ride. Learned a lot. You know, since we've been in the book of Genesis, we've gone through every part of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation. And uh, it's a wonderful book. Now, this little test that I'm going to give you today is really just for those who could, could remember back 20 years. So... Just think about this, if you're younger, it could be 10 years for some of you. It could be five years for some of you. But those of you that could think back 20 years, think back, if you will, to something that you might have done to someone else that was not a very good thing to do. And for whatever reason that you did this, whether you try to justify it or not, Think as to whether it stays with you and picks at you for 20 years. How much of that little incident do you remember? Because sometimes those things stay with us far too long. Without us, having, having, without us having done anything to correct it. Until God brings us to that point of correcting it. That's the life of the brothers of Joseph for 20 years. They went on with their lives. After they had taken their 17-year-old brother Joseph out, you know, who had come out actually to them, and they decided, you know, we're tired of this dreamer of dreams. We're tired of this arrogant, conceited little brother of ours who prances around in that royal robe of his. Sticking it in our faces each and every day that he's got the robe of the birthright. We all know that he's only wearing it because his father gave it to him. He was probably really the only one of the brothers that was worthy enough to wear it because all the others really never showed any signs whatsoever of of loving God and knowing God and wanting to serve God. We kind of saw a little bit about that when their own sister had been violated and they decided, well, they weren't just going to get the violator, they would get the whole town and they'd kill all the men of a place called Shechem. So now they had the upper hand on Joseph. And we're not told exactly what they did to him. They probably did a lot of things to him. And then they threw him in a pit. 
They were about to kill him until one brother said, No, let's not do that. Let's sell him instead. And let's take this robe and let's throw goat's blood on it and we'll take it back to Jacob and just tell him, you know, your son Joseph was eaten or at least ravaged by wild beasts and we'll just rid of him. Good riddance. Whatever happens, happens to him. And it seemed that for some 20 years, at least superficially, there was no worry about it. Until there was a famine in the land. Now there was this need that the family had in Canaan for food. Because that famine that was predicted by Joseph to the Pharaoh in his dream would not only affect Egypt, it's going to affect much of the Middle Eastern lands and the nations surrounding Egypt. And now we see something of God's hand, don't we? And we've always seen God's hand in this whole picture, and especially on, on the life of Joseph himself, who went through all of these afflictions for us being a type of Jesus Christ. But he went through all of these afflictions for 13 years. He suffered afflictions. 13 years of being a slave. 13 years within that time of, of, of suffering the injustices, of, of, of being accused of something he didn't do, and being put in prison for it. Thirteen years of being driven away from his home and from his father and from his family. Add to that another seven years now. Those seven years in which he, through the hand of God, has risen to become second in command in all of Egypt because of Pharaoh's trust in him and in his God. So the, to- the story is going to turn now from what God was doing to Joseph and what God is going to begin to do to his brothers. Because you see, his brothers are necessary. Remember, there was a promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There was a promise of a seed that was to come through this line, this family. And that these sons were actually going to be the very foundation of a nation, the nation of Israel. I I want you to think of how close this nation got to not being a nation because of the sin of the ten brothers. One, by the way, of which the seed of Messiah would come. Interesting little story, isn't it? Interesting circumstances. All designed by God who is sovereign and the providential hand of God moving when it wants to move, doing what it wants to do on behalf of His people. So we look at verse 1 of our text and 
Genesis chapter 42. We're not going to cover the whole chapter because next week we're going to actually deal with Jacob again for a little while. But here in verse 1 it says, When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? Now, this is not, uh, this is not a, a, a kind of a surface type question. This was a deep question, and we'll see about it in a moment. So please keep that in mind. And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Joseph did not, or I'm sorry, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain. By the way, notice that it says the sons of Israel. He's also called Jacob, right? Jacob is Israel. That was the name that God gave him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. That's also a, a, a statement made to remind us of God's purposes for Israel. So, with that in mind, I would venture to say that most of us here would agree that all of us are quite different in respect to how we deal with things pertaining to life and godliness or the lack thereof, but most importantly, how we deal and how we respond to things that happen to us or toward us. It's no different in how we all deal with the way people may treat us or mistreat us. Because with certain people, we see them do what they know is wrong towards someone and justify themselves by saying that the other person deserved what was coming to them. But when the tables are turned on them, the response might be, wait a minute, I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? You see how that can be? We can do so much to somebody, say that they deserve it, but then when something happens to us, we say, hey, I don't deserve that. Is that pretty much like most of us? No, so no, none of you want to admit to anything here. Okay. I think I'm getting it. Obviously, they're not so free thinking, in other words, as when they have the upper hand. If we have the upper hand, then that's when we really act, don't we? We really act like we're in control, like we're in charge. What we discover as believers is we're never in control and never in charge. I mean, we can be self-controlled in the Spirit of God, but we, we do things sometimes in the flesh that bring about certain responses that we deserve. Because this brings to us uh, this biblical principle that we see throughout scriptures, both in the Old and in the New Testament, for example, in the prophecy of Hosea. We're told in the first part of the verse, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. I think Paul clarifies that for us better in, in, the, in the New Testament when he says in Galatians 6, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For if he sows to his flesh, or for he who sows to his flesh, will of the flesh reap corruption, but, the, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. You see, if we sow the seeds of our lives into the flesh... Well, then we're just going to get corruption. Why? Because our flesh is corrupt. But if we sow to the Spirit of God, then we will reap the will of the Spirit of God unto everlasting life. I mean, that's a blessing, isn't it? But then Paul goes on to say, And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. 
So there's a, there's a time factor involved. You know, when we, when we sow unto the Lord and sow unto the Spirit, and we begin to do what is right and what is good, then we will reap good things if we don't lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. What we're going to learn today is this is what Joseph actually does for his own brothers, even though they don't know it's Joseph yet. He was one who did good to all, but especially to those of the household of faith. So in our study of the life of Joseph, we we realize that his ten older brothers had sown to the wind. And as well, they had sown to the flesh. And in the next few chapters that we find them here, we find them facing not not only the consequences of of their earlier actions, but the mercy. We we find them meeting and, and facing the mercies of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through their brother Joseph, who was to them for all intents and purposes dead and gone. They would have never expected Joseph to be in Egypt, much less be the second in command to Pharaoh in all of the land of Egypt. It just wouldn't be expected. As far as they were concerned, 20 years down the road, somehow Joseph had to have probably died. For who, what, you know, what, what was the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the rate of, of, of life and death for, for slaves? It wasn't very good as far as life was concerned. But what they're going to see in their brother Joseph are the qualities of another biblical principle. And the principles that we see in Philippians 4 verses 12 and 13. Where Paul says, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Uh, I, I want to comment very strongly that this is the Christian life. This is the life of a believer in Jesus Christ. When you consider the fullness of a life lived for for Christ... There are going to be times of emptiness. There are going to be times of fullness. There are going to be times of being attacked. There are going to be times of us living above all of the attacks of the enemy. There are going to be times when when we will will live with needs and, and suffer greatly because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there will be times when we will abound because God will bless us for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the Christian life. Be careful with all of those people who make all of these promises and say, listen, you know, the Christian life is a, it's a feely good thing. We got a lot of feely good preachers out there. Just want to make you feel good. It's not about feeling, it's about faith. It's about trusting God through every circumstance in life. And listen, if you look at verse 13, Paul tells us, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things. I can live empty and I can live full. I can live suffering need and I can live abounding. I can live through any situation because Christ strengthens me. He's my strength. He's my wisdom. He's my grace. He's my mercy. He's my all and all. This is how we are to live the Christian faith. This is how we are to live the Christian life. This is how we are to walk 
in the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. Is this not how we have seen the life of Joseph so far? Suffering and yet never saying a word, but trusting God, trusting in the presence of God, who said that he was with Joseph through all of this? Never lacking the presence of God. There is in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, a deeper sense of his attitude in the midst of these things. Because Paul said, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. I will say to you today that these become the greater challenges of the believer in Jesus Christ than anything that we've ever dealt with that has come against us as a, as a believer. Because we sometimes struggle being kind to one another. Am I right? We sometimes have a struggle being tenderhearted. And much greater than any of those things, one of the hardest things we have to face is forgiving one another. But we're to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave us. Facile or no? Never easy. Because we're still, as I look at you, you're still in flesh. Now, if we are led by the Spirit, we will do those things that honor and bless the Lord and the Spirit. But that means we have to die to ourselves, don't we? This is the principle that Joseph lived by. Because Joseph, as a type of Jesus Christ, has shown us only the character of the heart of Jesus. That character will not change as he sees his brothers before him. And what this first part of this chapter, and actually the rest of this whole book, from this point on, is a lesson of the brothers of Joseph walking the road of reconciliation with Joseph. And the road to reconciliation for Joseph's brothers began with the needs of the family living in Canaan experiencing the very same famine that Egypt and the rest of the known world suffered. And that is what brings them together. That was God's hand even using the famine. This was not happenstance. This was Almighty God and His counsel and his plans being fulfilled. The road to reconciliation for Joseph's brothers begin with reason and recognition. It begins with reason and recognition, and I'll define those in just a moment, and you'll see them as we go anyway. Verses 1 through 5 again, when, jo- when Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? Now, this is not one of those questions that has to do with, you know, hey, what, what are you guys looking at? I mean, hey, I got a job for you. It wasn't just a kind of a little simple question. No, this was a very deep question about the way they were acting when he mentioned Egypt. 
Verse 2 says, He said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. There's a reason that there's need for reconciliation. That comes pretty close now. It says, So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Lest some some calamity befall uh, befall him, his youngest and most precious brother after Joseph now. He said, I'm not going to send these, my son with these guys. Last time I sent Joseph with him, I mean, he never came back. So there is that sense of uh, insecurity in Jacob with these ten brothers. But the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now, word had got around, as we see here, eventually getting to Jacob, that there was food being sold in Egypt. But the first thing that Jacob asked his sons was about their uneasiness amongst themselves when Egypt was mentioned. And he could notice it. To Jacob, they looked shocked. It wasn't just a thing about, oh man, here we go again, we've got to do all of our, our, our father's bidding, you know, whatever. No, they were shocked about something. And literally, that, that little phrase that we read about him looking at them and wondering about them, literally, Jacob noted the look of perplexity, the look of perplexity in his son's faces. Why? Did it have to do with the fact that some 20 years earlier, they sold their brother Joseph to the Midianite traders who were on their way to Egypt, always thinking that they probably sold their brother into slavery there? There's one of those little things, those, those little triggers, you know, that, that we have in our minds over 20 years of time. You know, we're trying to forget these things. Joseph's been gone. It's been a better world for us that he's not around here telling us about all of his dreams. But then the father mentions Egypt and all of a sudden something clicks. And what was it that clicked? Guilt. Oh, it would have been better if we hadn't even heard that word. What this brings us to understand is that the Lord had not only been working on Joseph's life and character. We talked about that. Everything that Joseph went through, all of the struggles that he went through, we realized that God was working on his life and on his character so that we might realize that God wants to work in our lives and in our character. But... He was now going to be working on his brother's character and his brother's lives through conviction. The conviction of God's Holy Spirit. See, God deals with his people with conviction. He doesn't deal with us with condemnation. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. But I think of what Jesus said in, in, in John chapter 16, verse 8, when he says that when he has come, speaking of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He will convict. And, and there's a connection to that word convict with the word convince, because he wants us to be convinced that we are sinners. And once we find ourselves having been uh, seen as a sinner, then we're convicted. A conviction takes place. But that's the Holy Spirit wanting us to see who we are in the presence of a holy God. 
So when the Spirit of God does this, He will for a time make us very uncomfortable. Without a show of hands, I mean, uh, uh, am I alone here when I, when I think that uh, I've experienced that being uncomfortable when God is convicting me of something that I shouldn't, uh, shouldn't have done? Or possibly even convicting me of something that I should have done? Uh, am I alone in it? Don't raise your hands. I hope I'm not alone. It's not a comfortable feeling. It's not comfortable going through the conviction of God. But the results will only help us to grow. It will only help us to grow in maturity in Christ. It will also help us to grow nearer and nearer to God so that when we walk with God, we do not want to be, as, we do not want to be far away from Him anymore because it isn't God who leaves us, it's us who, leaves, who leave Him. It's us who leave Him. And in this case, Joseph's brothers are being convicted. God is beginning to do His work in them. Jacob uh, sent the ten older sons to Egypt, but, the, but he kept the youngest son, uh, Benjamin, Joseph's full brother through Rachel, from going. As we will learn, Jacob is not walking at this time closely with the Lord. He's not, uh, you know, we, we've seen him walk close with the Lord before. But now Jacob's not walking very close with the Lord. Could it be that he's living in a cave of self-pity all because he thought Joseph was dead? That was certainly the brother's fault, but nonetheless, he's just, he's just wallowing in, his, in, in self-pity. He's, he's, he's wallowing in. And, and what that does is it only builds up more bitterness, more anger toward anything. All, all that uh, this, this self-pity does is lead to bitterness and, and pessimism about everything. We'll never see a glass half full. We'll always see it half empty. And some might ask, well, shouldn't he be bitter? Losing the son that he loved above all? Shouldn't he love his sons all the same? But the question is, shouldn't he be bitter? And I say to you, absolutely not. He should not, he should not be. Jacob being a person who knew God, he should not be. First of all, what Jacob was doing was not going to bring Joseph back. All of that self-pity was not going to bring his son back. And secondly, hadn't God spoken to Joseph in a dream that he had made known to his brothers and his father that they would bow down before Joseph and what God had promised he would bring to pass no matter how impossible it may seem? I, uh, I should say Jacob was one who, who actually saw God do some great impossible things. He had heard the stories of his own father and of his own uh, grandfather, Abraham and Sarah, who were barren, and then later on God did, did not let them stay barren. They, they had a child of promise. God was the God of the impossible. And lastly, I don't think Jacob trusted his ten sons. Since the last time, Joseph didn't come back. In this case, he was protecting his son Benjamin. But now when we think of a famine, we, we tend to see it as a bad thing, don't we? It is. Famines are always bad, especially this one was a very severe famine. But God is going to use this famine to bring the brothers of Joseph to Egypt and eventually to bring the entire family there to protect them and to grow a nation from them. Oh, by the way, did we forget that there's supposed to be a nation called Israel that is born out of these ten sons as well as the other sons? It's actually supposed to be the twelve sons of Israel. There's a nation that's going to be born. 
But the first problem is we got ten of them that are murderers and liars and thieves. And any other number of misgivings. With all of that in mind, think about this. Look at verses 6 through 8. Now Joseph was governor over the land. Joseph, the brother of these sons of Jacob. Joseph is the governor over the land of Egypt. And it was he who sold to all the people of the land. If you were going to get any grain at all from Egypt, you had to go to see Joseph. And Joseph's brothers came, and would you notice what is underlined here? Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. They still don't know it's Joseph's. What are they doing? They're bowing down to the one who's going to give them grain. They came to buy the grain from this man that they said, he's the one that you got to go to. Oh, we're bowing down. They're bowing down to him. What does that remind you of? The dream, the dream that Joseph had given to his brothers years before, 20 years before, that they were all these sheaves that would be bowing down to him. And they hated him for it. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. When I mentioned that the road of, uh, to reconciliation involves recognition, it's not this kind of recognition, even though this is important. He recognized them. They didn't recognize him. As it is with sinners, we don't always recognize the fact that we're in sin. We don't always recognize that we need, a, uh, that we need help because of that. Verse, uh, verse 7 goes on and says, Then he said to them, Where do you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. So some 20 years earlier, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, putting an end to this dreamer's dreams. I want you to remember something back in Genesis 37, verses 19 and 20. It says, then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Remember that the father had sent Joseph out to find out where his sons were all out in the field with the, shep- with the sheep and all. And then it says, come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. Then we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. Oh, they hated their brother because he had those dreams. And the dream was they were going to bow down to him. Well, that was a dream God gave to Joseph to give to his family for this very time to keep them alive so that they would not die as a nation so that they would go on to bring forth not only the nation of Israel but the Messiah who was to come through them you see the importance of this and what I find to be quite interesting is that by their actions by the actions of these sons as bad as they were they fulfilled the plan of God They fulfill the plan of God. The dreams of Joseph are coming to pass as they bow before him. And even though they don't know this is Joseph, they eventually will know. Because you see, ignorant as well as evil men have and will continue to try to thwart or to foil the plans of God. 
But in the end, God will use their plans to fulfill His. God will always use the plans of, of man to fulfill His plans. They want to thwart God's plans. God, God is actually in the business of thwarting the plans of, of man. Listen to these words in Psalm 33, verses 8 through uh, 11. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. That reminds me of the very first chapter of the book of Genesis. Where it tells us that God said, light be and light was. I know that sometimes our, our, our Bible say, let there be light. That God said, let there be light. He said, light be. That's what it says in the Hebrew. Light be. That's all he had to say, and light was. Probably didn't even have to say be. All he had to say was light, and boom, there it was. That's the way God was, and he is. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. You see the counsel of nations in verse 10? The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. We have, we have nations today making plans outside of the will of God. As a matter of fact, they don't even care about having God in, the, in, in their governments. It used to be that sometimes we had presidents that actually would read the Bible and actually would believe what the Bible had to say. Throughout much of the history of, of, of our nation. And today is not that way. And I say that that is a bad thing for our nation, and that's why we need to continue to pray for our nation. Because the Bible very clearly says in the book of Proverbs, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation. Which means, which means that nations, when, they, when their counsel is against God, and, and any counsel that is not with God is against God, it's going to come to nothing. That is why as we're studying prophecy on, in, in the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, we're realizing, you know, God is in control of all things, no matter what man does. And so the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations. Now, folks, that should bring comfort to each and every one of us that even during the darkest of times, God is in control and His plans and His purposes will be brought to pass. But not only reason and recognition are important on the road to reconciliation, more importantly are rebuke, requirements, and remorse, especially in the lives of these ten brothers. Rebuke, requirements, and remorse. I'll tie these all together at the end. But we need to move on in verse 9. It says, Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them. Here he has his brothers bowing before him. And Joseph remembers, wow, the dream. They're bowing down. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. In other words, you've come to, to, to look for our weaknesses. You didn't come for grain. Now, you might be thinking right away, Joseph just wants a little payback. Just a little bit. Just a little payback. Doesn't reveal himself yet. He says, you're spies. 
He treats them harshly. And they said to him, no, my Lord, but, but your servants, we're your servants who have come to buy food. Uh, we were all one man's sons. We're honest men. Whoa, take that back a little bit. I could just see Joseph. <laughs> Try not to show expression, but inside he's like, what a bunch of lies. <laughs> We're honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. You, you've come to look for our weaknesses. And they said, Your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today and one is no more. One is no more. Is that truth? It's not true. They're standing right in front of him. They don't know it. They've come to believe their lie. They certainly made their father believe it, didn't they? Your son is dead. Joseph said to them, It is that I spoke to you saying, You're spies. In this manner you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother. And you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. When you know what they do to spies, right? So they've got this fear already. And so he put them all together in prison three days. That's an interesting length of time, three days. Put them in prison. I would suggest that uh, he put them in prison to protect them. To keep them together, to protect them, but also to give them something to think about. Because you see, as you read this, and some of the other things that Joseph does to his brothers, you may come to the conclusion that he is paying them back for what they did to him, but I'm here to tell you that is not what is going on. I want you to consider that Joseph's desire was not only to correct his brothers, but to see them restored. He wanted his brothers restored. And in this we see another type of Jesus Christ in Joseph. Because Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, especially the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He came to save. He did not come the first time to destroy. He came not to destroy, but to fulfill. And when somebody in the body of Christ needs correction, may it always be done in love with the idea of restoration and not destruction. I've seen too much destruction even in the church today. Where people are judged harshly. Not with love, not with care, not with understanding. Not as, as we're told in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, if anyone sees a brother that is, that, that is you know, fallen in essence. God calls us to pick them up. God calls us to restore them. In the love of God and in the love of the Word of God and to restore them remembering that that could be us. 
that we would want to be restored into the loving fellowship of God's family. You want people to be restored to the place of fellowship. We would want to be restored should we falter. And as harsh as this may seem, God will use whatever means to bring us to that place that we need to be. I want you to think of the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119, verse 67. Could be David, it could be another psalmist, but nonetheless, it says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Think about that. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. The point he's making is, I I went off the beaten path and God afflicted me. For what reason? Well, he says, but now I keep your word. <laughs> I was a, before I was afflicted, I went astray. God had to take whatever means necessary to bring me back to Him so that I can keep His word. That's how much God loves us. He doesn't condemn us, He convicts us. And the conviction of God's Holy Spirit is to bring us back to Him. It is always to bring us back to fellowship. The affliction of God brought the psalmist back to the Lord to a place of restoration as he kept God's word instead of rebelling against it. So you see the conviction of God draws you back to him, but condemnation pushes you away from the Lord because that is from the devil. The devil condemns you. Christ desires to save you. So we look at the brothers now up to this point. How, they're do, how are they doing so far? Still not too good. They're still not too good. Let's, let's see if we can get them in a better place. So, so they've lied about Joseph, saying that he's dead. They knew he was sold into slavery and living a harsh life, but they refused, by the way, they refused to acknowledge their own sins. And so Joseph turned up the heat. That's what's happening here. Joseph is turning up the heat a little bit. The Lord will sometimes do that to us to get us to pay attention to Him. He wants us to be attentive to Him. And sometimes, you know, when we're not quite saying and doing what we're supposed to be, He turns the heat up a little bit. He accuses them of being spies and he places them in prison for three days to think about their deeds. So we go on, the next three verses. Then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live for I fear God. Do this and live for I fear God. Now this is a very interesting statement because, you know, you would think that Joseph, who they do not know is Joseph, but this person here, this second in command of all the land of Egypt, is probably some kind of a, a moon worshiper or sun worshiper or something, but, but what he says is, I fear God. And he's not talking about any other God but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's an interesting thing that he says to his brothers. I fear God in all of this. I want you to do this and live because I fear God. Don't forget that Pharaoh also acknowledged the God of Joseph because of the testimony of Joseph's life before him. And then it says, if you are honest men, if you are honest men, 
Let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. After three days, he releases them from prison and asks them to go home and bring their youngest brother back to Egypt. Now, Joseph may have been wondering about Benjamin knowing what his older brothers were like, so he would like to see his brother. And as he makes this demand, they agree. And I'm sure they would agree to anything at this point, because they were afraid that they would be put to death or made slaves and never return home. Now, I have to say that they were not quite yet broken, but guilt was eating them alive. Guilt was eating them alive. Twenty years. Twenty years. And one word clicked. Egypt. And guess where they are now? Egypt. Isn't God good? And then they said to one another, Now take note of this, please. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty. We are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. And therefore this distress has come upon us. We are truly guilty concerning our brother. What's happened here? You see, they had at one time been dead in their consciences, dead in their trespasses and sin. God awakened that when He mentions Egypt through His Father who says, you need to go to Egypt and get some grain. But now they're facing other troubles. Why are all these things happening to me? Have you ever thought that God is taking you through something? Possibly to get you to confess your guilt over something? What you wouldn't have done until you became alive in your conscience. And it reminds us of Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul says, We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but God who is rich in His mercy, even when we were yet dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive in Jesus Christ, for by grace are you saved. And he goes on later to say, For by grace are you saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And we became alive to the things that we had to confess and lay before God, as far as our confession is concerned, to say, Lord God, I'm a sinner. And I have offended you with my sin. And I can only plead for your mercies. The mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for me. I believe in the cross of Jesus Christ. I believe that He died in my place. And in so doing, He paid for my sins with the blood of His body. And I surrender myself to Your Lordship to your salvation.
the requirements. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. We saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. I, you know, we, we, didn't, we never heard anything before when, when Joseph was, was, was being taken almost to death and then put in a pit and then eventually sold into slavery. But we never hear that Joseph ever said a word. He was as a, a sheep that went to the slaughter, just like it says of Jesus in Isaiah 53. And I think when, he, when, when they confessed that they saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear, I think only uh, of the cross. When Jesus on that cross would cry out in anguish, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That to fulfill the Scriptures. And a whole nation of people would have to consider the darkness of that day to be the darkness of their souls. And therefore this distress has come upon us. Now there's recognition. Now there's recognition of what? The recognition of what sin has done to a life. And in this case, to the lives of these ten brothers. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? As if he was sinless himself. Oh, Reuben was a major part of what happened. But he goes on and he says, Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. There's the requirement. Who's paying that requirement for them? They may have been required by Joseph to go back and bring Benjamin to them, but the requirement was greater than that. It was blood. But they did not understand that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. He was listening to every word that they said. And notice what Joseph does in verse 24. He turned himself away from them and he wept. He could not let them know that he understood what they had said. But he wept because they finally confessed. They finally acknowledged their sinfulness. They finally acknowledged their sin. They finally acknowledged their crime against their brother and against their father and against their God. He wept. This was the very reason that these things were done to bring them to this acknowledgement. I want you to keep in mind, as I said earlier, that that Joseph is speaking to them through this interpreter. They they don't know he can understand everything that he's saying. Now Now we're seeing that all those years to try to conceal their sin and the facade that they were wearing, the masks, and it was just beginning to fall apart. 
Their guilty conscience troubled them and they, re- they realized the wrong that they did. And Joseph, you know, crying out from the pit to let him go and they refused to listen. His cries falling on deaf ears. And, and now as all of this is happening to, the, happening to them, they realize that what you sow is what you reap. All in all, though, folks, all in all, this was good. This was a good sign. This was a good thing. Because you see, Solomon in Proverbs 20, verse 27 says, The spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. The only reason why the lamp was searching their hearts was because they were now alive in their consciences. God made them alive to see the depths of their sin, which is what he did to us. Folks, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, it has to be this way in that we must see the sinfulness of our hearts to the very depths of it and recognize the need to repent of our sins. John the Baptist, what did he preach? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, when he began his earthly ministry, what did he preach? Repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. What did the prophets preach? For years, hundreds and hundreds of years, repentance. They would say to the children of Israel, repent and return to the Lord. Turn away, completely away from your lifestyle, your sin, and turn back to God. You see what the preaching of the Word of God does? In reality, that's what our hearts should be doing, crying for what has been revealed. When we thought we were not so bad, then we see what the Scripture says. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Their conscience was not dead any longer, but their sin was before them. Make no mistake about it. We can harden ourselves to the Holy Spirit's leading in our life and become cold and insensitive to the things of God. In fact, Paul put it this way in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. He said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared, With a hot iron, it is my prayer that we may be open to what the Lord is showing us because the more that we harden ourselves to what He is saying, the more our consciences become hard and insensitive to Him. So I would just say, my prayer is that you you do not let your consciences be seared toward God and become insensitive because the hardness leads to bitterness, the bitterness leads to anger, the anger leads to many more... terrible things. So in spite of what all the brothers did to him, Joseph still loved them. This is a lesson for us. Joseph still loved his brothers. He wasn't bitter or angry with them. We don't see that. We never saw that with Jesus against the Jewish people. He was Jewish. They were his people. He came to them first. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. 
But Joseph wasn't bitter or angry as he heard how they were now becoming broken over their sin. He knew that they were on their way to restoration. And Joseph begins to weep, but he doesn't let them see this. And after, after this, he returned to them and he places Simeon in prison until the brothers return with Benjamin. I mean, it, it may be that, they, that he chose Simeon because he was the chief instigator in wanting Joseph to be put to death, giving him even more time to contemplate his own misdoings. But... But listen, let's close with this. And re- restraint and return. The last two things that are on the road to, to reconciliation. Restraint and return. In verses 25 through 28, this is the last section that we'll study today. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. And thus he did for them. That means that all ten of them brought money or something that was equivalent to money to buy grain to take back to Canaan. All of them had it. So therefore, they were all given grain and their money back. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. They didn't know the money was there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money. And there it was in the mouth of his sack. Now you think, well, that's a wonderful thing, right? Notice verse 28. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored and there it is in my sack. Folks, that's not rejoicing. That's not rejoicing. Remember you, you look through those, those jeans in the closet and you found a hundred dollar bill in them? You're all excited? That's not this. He said, then their hearts failed them and they, they were afraid saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? Now, you would think that's a bad thing to say. You know why I don't think it is? Because in all the time that we've been looking at the brothers all up to this point, they never even talked about God. Until now. Now they realize something. Now they realize that God is in the picture. Folks, we need to realize God's in our picture. God's in every one of our pictures. So don't ever think of doing selfies. You're not, you're not alone. Lord's with you. What is this that God has done to us? We, we think they should be excited. No, you know what? Hey, listen, we're already in trouble with that guy down in Egypt. Now we got this money. They're going to think we're thieves. You see? Blessing? When sin haunts the mind and guilt has gripped the soul, it is difficult for the sinner to perceive any unusual experience as anything but judgment. Even blessings are not seen as blessings, but as judgments in disguise. You see, when you are walking with guilt, nothing looks good. Nothing feels good. Why? Because it's guilt that's bothering you. It's guilt that's keeping you from enjoying life. So you try to enjoy it more in your, in your denial, but God is after your heart. He was after these ten dudes. And He was going to get them. He needed to get them. You know why? Why He didn't need them, but He could get any ten and make the nation of Israel. He wanted them. By the way, one of those ten was going to be the one through whom the seed of Messiah would come. But he had to get his heart right with God. That perception that even blessings could be just judgments in disguise, 
That denoted true repentance in the brothers. That was the good thing. It denoted true repentance in their brothers because for true repentance sees itself deserving of judgment. True repentance. But understand repentance in this manner. We're going to close with this. Romans 2 verse 4, Paul said this, Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? This has all been God's goodness to lead them to repentance? Does this not sound like those brothers that who, they despise the riches of God's goodness, they despise the riches of His forbearance, they despise the riches of His longsuffering, because they didn't know that the goodness of God was leading them to repentance? This was God loving them, not wanting to destroy them. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 7 verses 9 and 10. Paul says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. So I'm glad you, you know, in essence, I'm glad you were made sorry. I don't rejoice in that, but that your sorrow led you to repentance. You know, we could be sorry about our sin and never go to heaven. Did you know that? Can I just mention one name? Judas Iscariot? He was sorry for what he did, but he didn't repent. That's why it's important to understand, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led you to repentance, for you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. The point is this. Even we were given repentance as a gift by God, when He awakened our conscience. Even we were given repentance. That's why repentance is so important. It is essential that we recognize the sin that brought Jesus to the cross and that the cross was for us. But thanks be to God that when Jesus died on the cross and He shed His blood for our forgiveness, that if we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and we believe and confess in Jesus Christ and that He has risen from the dead because of what He did in dying on our behalf, you shall be saved. The importance then of the road to reconciliation, the reasoning, We're sinners. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The recognition, the recognizing of our sins, the rebuke coming from the Word of God and the Spirit of God that says you need to turn and come back to God. The requirements, the blood of Jesus Christ. Not your blood or mine, the blood of Jesus Christ. The remorse, the sorrow for sin, the restraint to take a new course of action as believers in Jesus Christ away from sin and the return, returning to the foundation and the fellowship of our love of God and God's love for us. That's the road to reconciliation. How many of us are on it? How many of us need to be on it? How many of us can give give the testimony that we've been on that road? And we've experienced the blessings of Jesus Christ. This is about Jesus loving you. This is about Jesus giving His all for you. Let us give our all back to Him. In service, in praise, in worship, 
in accepting and trusting and believing every word that He has given us and knowing that life and godliness, that we've been blessed with life and godliness through Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray.